right. Well, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, um, John Larson. And we're here in Studio 1A, um, surrounded by the history of Mormonism, as it were, um, surrounded by the books. It's, it's looking better. The studio's coming. It's, it's, it's a little basement-y as opposed to the other studio, but it's coming along. Um, and, um, I've got the whiteboard up there so we can write down interesting things when they occur to us. It's blank right now. And we're here with another lovely studio audience. Um, all, all, all old friends. So welcome to, uh, Studio 1A. Thanks for coming, guys. And as always, the mics are open. So if, if you feel so, if the spirit moves you, um, feel free to step up to the mic. Of course, Mormon Expression for a lot of years, um, would, um, do our conference review. It became a defining sort of, of element of who we are, were and what we did. Uh, the problem is that most of us who've been doing this for a long time don't give a shit anymore, so we won't listen to it. Um, but every so often something interesting comes out and, um, that, that might be worth, uh, addressing. And, um, what interests me, uh, I'll, I'll tease a podcast that, that'll be coming up a little bit. I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit, a, a little bit more in the future about what interests me these days. But, um, oftentimes what interests me is not exactly what interests everybody else, which is okay. Um, but the talk that I found most interesting was the talk by, uh, President Uchtdorf, um, the, um, the Ladies' Choice Award winner three years in a, in a, three years in a row now for Mormon <laughs> conference talks. Um, and he gave a, a, a talk called Come Join With Us. Um, was it in the priesthood session? First session. In the, in the, in the Saturday morning session. Um, and Uchtdorf has become a popular, um, speaker. He, of course, is a, a former airline executive and a Merophile German who has lived in the United States for quite a few years. He brings a sort of swagger and, um, uh, dapperness. Is, is that, is that, a, is that a real word to, to the quorum that's been, oh, woefully missing for many years? Um, <laughs> Who was the last little guy who would put um, pomade in his hair and had the little mustache? Oh, I, I can see his picture. We're talking about the 40s. You guys all remember the 40s, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a while since we've had we've had a dapper uh, member in the in the in the quorum. Uh, but 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 he he's the one. Uh, he, he's he's um, really. His modus seems to be about inclusiveness and, and reaching out and becoming friendly. And these are all great messages. He's not much of a deep thinker as far as the, um, theology, theology, theology. He's not much of a deep thinker as far as theology goes, but, um, but I think he sort of gets at least American Protestant Christianity. You know, he's, uh, of course, Christianity has been a dynamic thing for 2,000 years. You can't really talk about Christianity per se, but, but I, I think he sort of gets that modern ethic of reaching out, at least that, that liberal ethic. And it's, it's a refreshing voice to have, um, coming from Salt Lake City. Um, he also seems to be the, the guy who's handling some of the, the more tense issues. And, uh, and we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that a little bit more. Come join with us, sort of, the first half of it is exactly what you would expect. It's sort of a rah, rah, hey, we're wonderful, aren't you glad you're part of the, the, the one true church? That, that of course isn't interesting. But then he goes in, um, he goes in for the kill. Um, and the, the talk is available on the LDS.org 
um, uh, website. You can go out there. You can download a visual copy. You can watch him talk. You can download a, a written copy. So if you want to follow along, head out to LDS.org, uh, and you can find uh, this talk here and the elements we're going to be talking about. Um, first, I want to start out with a quote by George Orwell. Of course, um, George Orwell is the author most famously known for Animal Farm in 1984. And he was um, a rather deep thinker about um, organizations, organizational structure, organizational abuse. And in uh, 1946, he said this. The point is that we are all capable of believing things which we know to be untrue. And then we are finally proven wrong, impudently twisting the facts so as to show that we were right. Intellectually, it is possible to carry on this process for an indefinite time. The only check on it is that sooner or later, false beliefs bump up against solid reality, usually on a battlefield. Um, this is something that's played out over and over, and there's been a lot of research in the last 20 or 30 years on cognitive dissonance and dissonance theory and bias and cognitive bias, um, showing that as human beings, we really get married to our pet beliefs. And we're really not as logical as we like to believe we are ourselves when it comes to these things, that the we actually deploy logic to defend or buttress our own position. And there's been tons and tons of research that's been shown that people really do not question their, 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 their core values or their core, their core thoughts. Um, and, and they do really, really slide into defensive posture very, very quickly. And, you know, I've thought about this for a lot of years and I think it's amazing, amazing. If you think about all of the, um, Big companies, and we know the big companies have done lots of awful things, as people do. They all have legal counsel, right? They have, they have, they have tons and tons of lawyers. How many of these lawyers turn against their fearful masters? It's actually quite rare. How many whistleblowers are out there? I mean, think about the size of companies like, um, um, Procter and Gamble or Monsanto or the, these big companies. It's extremely rare, statistically, for somebody to, to actually question anything they've, they've, they've done, even though these insiders really have a lot of knowledge about, about um, um, terrible things that go on. So my, my point is not to get into anything about corporations. It's to say that, that it's really rare for us to question our, question our, our values or question what we, um, what we accept. There is an excellent, excellent book on this very topic um, called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. Um, it's a book by Carol, um, by Carol Tarvis, Tav Tavris. It's a book by Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson, uh, published in 2007. And it really goes through and it, it does chapter after chapter after chapter and talks about how we have these cognitive biases that uh, affect the way we process the world. Um, for books that I recommend to people who have had a crisis of faith or people who are coming out of a fundamentalist church like the Mormon church, it's one of the ten books that I recommend that people read. It's it's a book that I've read myself about five times. It's 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 very um, good for looking at your own personal biases and how that plays out in things like memory and our relationships and just how we process the world. Um, and and it's it's a it's a brilliant book. But the book is built on this statement: mistakes were made. Um, this is what is called formally a non-apology apology. Um, and I'm, I'm using the Wikipedia definition here because Wikipedia is the source of all truth. 
Actually, there was a, if I remember right, uh, that, and I have cognitive bias, so I might be remembering wrong. There was a study a few years ago where they took, like some graduate students took like the Encyclopedia Britannica and they took uh, Wikipedia and they went through and these graduate students looked for mistakes and their conclusion was Wikipedia was more accurate than the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, it's just, it can be, for a very short time, it can be very inaccurate because, you know, if you have a paper coming due, you can go and alter it, but somebody's going to catch it. All right. So a non-apology apology is a statement that has the form of apology but does not express the expected contrition. It is common in both politics and public relations. It most commonly entails the speaker saying that he or, he or she is sorry not for a behavior, statement, or misdeed, but rather is sorry only because a person who has been um, aggrieved is requesting the apology. So that the, it's the classic one is, I'm sorry that you feel that way. You're, you're not really apologizing for anything. Um, so that, that's the first, um, example of a non-apology apology. Um, but then it gets into this passive voice. Now, passive voice, for all those who don't love grammar as much as I do, is, uh, is a construction in which the subject of the sentence is removed from the sentence. Um, and it's, it, once you tune into it, it's almost always used with malintent. It's, it's, it's always used to cover, <laughs> cover somebody's ass. So when you use passive voice, you say, um, the garbage was left out on the street, right? The subject, the, the subject of the sentence has been removed. Who left the garbage out on the street? Well, we're, we're not really going to put that there. We're not going to put it in the sentence because we don't want to acknowledge any culpability. So, so when we talk about mistakes being made, um, we, we're really looking at trying to acknowledge that something happened without taking any ownership of it whatsoever ourselves. So actually, there's even a Wikipedia entry on the quote, the phrase mistakes were made. So mistakes were made is an expression that is commonly used as a rhetorical device whereby a speaker acknowledges that a situation was handled poorly or inappropriately, but seeks to evade any direct admission or accusation of responsibility by using the passive voice, which allows for the deletion of the agent, the person who made the mistakes. The acknowledgement of a mistake is framed in in abstract sense with no direct reference to who made the mistakes. So active voice would be, I did this. Passive voice would be, mistakes were made. Um, this, you can search, and I was going to go through a bunch of examples, but then I thought I'd put you all to sleep. Um, this has been used over and over and over again. Um, one of the most famous ones is by Henry Kissinger, you know, who talked about when, when they were bombing Cambodia and stuff, mistakes being made by the administration. But because of his, um, because of Kissinger's position, he was the administration. Um, and of course, um, Nixon era lawyers, um, um, this has been used just over and over and over again when a political scandal blows up. I think in the beginning, in the first chapter, mistakes were made. They quote one of the um, cardinals um, when the the child sex um, scandal broke over the um, over the Catholic um, priests, the clergy who were molesting um, children. It was that this mistakes were made. Who made the mistakes? Well, we're not really going to talk about that. This is ex- extremely important because. Um, some see it as a precursor to something else that's about to come, that, that this is the storm on the horizon. And this is what sort of tickled me to, to talk about this subject, because I saw the Mormon left um, go, go kind of crazy about this talk. You know, I, I, I don't always anymore watch what the church is saying, because it's kind of boring. But when things start getting um, 
sort of, there starts to be a lot of noise about something, then I look and see what's going on. And what I notice right away is that the Mormon left, and by the Mormon left, I mean those who are liberal Mormons or Mormon reformists, those who want to still keep the church around, engage the church, but oftentimes want the church to be more progressive, following the same sort of left-right um, paradigm we see in politics. So so I'm, I'm using that term very inclusive, and I don't mean it derogatory at all. But the, but the, but the Mormon left were really excited about this. Um, they were... They were, um, they were just all over themselves with, 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 this is something that's new and progressive. And I can't pull anything out of my mind that is similar to the church ma- making a statement like this. Um, New York Times picked this up. Um, so it, it, it didn't, it, it made a significant splash, um, in that people took notice that, um, Uchtdorf here said mistakes were made. Which I think is kind of fascinating, given the background that I'm that I'm talking about. Because I want to go through now Uch- what Uchtdorf actually said, and look to see what what he um, what he means. Y'all with me so far? I need to drop more f bombs because I'm I'm losing my audience already. <laughs> All right, we we can talk about sex later. Okay. So, so Uchtdorf goes through and talks about how great the church is, and then he asks, one might ask, if the gospel is so wonderful, why would anybody leave? This question, um, for those who aren't as familiar with the church, is an amazingly insightful one, in that it sums up a lot of thinking. The church, what the church does, and, and, and I, I realize in my studies that this is not a uniquely Mormon pattern. This is something you'll see in fundamentalist religions all over the world and through time. But what the church does is it frames these questions in such a way that they are beyond questioning, they're beyond refutation. Um, and I want to get into this more in a, in a couple weeks. But, but this is why faith is so important. Because what faith is, is a buttress against any sort of questioning. And it's, it's its own system. And people look at it from the outside and say, why are religious people so illogical? The answer is they're not, but they have this internal system that makes them immune to questioning, immune to to um, applying sort of those rhetorical standards, those logical standards to their own faith. Um, and like I say, that's a, that's a whole big topic, but the reason I bring it up here is because that question hits people very much. Those of us who have left the church and talked to relatives understand the dumbfoundedness that some people look at you with in that it doesn't even register that a it's a possibility to leave the church or b why anybody would do it they they just it just it just simply escapes them and it's 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 a fascinating discussion to be in and to watch you know now that i've observed people leaving the church for a long time cuz they're just boats passing in the night and you see these people getting more and more agitated when they're talking to each other and they're not even speaking the same language the only thing that's akin to it or the thing that's most akin to it is when you hear the pro-life and pro-choice people talking to each other it's they're not even speaking the same language they're not talking about the same thing and they're just talking right past each other and and for Uchtdorf to point that out in conference i think is actually quite progressive because he's he's acknowledging that that it, it happens and this is this is the most um applaudable thing he says. Sometimes we assume it is because they have been offended or lazy or sinful. Actually, it's not that simple. And and this is a refutation, uh, I'll give him credit where credit is due, of something that has been printed in manuals and been said over and over and over again. And it comes from that, that element of faith that I'm talking about. The people believe the church is so 
apparently true that the only possible reason that you would leave is because you have one of these things. And actually, um, you know, to, to, to poke Uchtdorf a little bit, it's still in the temple, right? The, the devil come in the, in the temple, the devil comes up and says that if you don't do everything they ask you to do, then you'll be in his power. And, and I think that teaching is a strong one. And it, it, it tells people that once you become disobedient to the gospel, once you don't accept it, well, then you can't even think straight. I mean, I've had this conversation with, with brilliant people, lawyers, um, who, who, who would say that. I'd say anything that you, once, once you're, you're, you're unfaithful and you're drinking Coronas in the basement, um, you, you're, you're no longer can trust any thought that you have. Which is a very interesting thing. We're going to return to that at the end. Um, so, so, um, so he he's saying some some people struggle for years with with these doubts. Um, and I'm not going to read the end of the talk. I'd invite y'all to go through. I can't figure out who the hell he's talking to at the end because it sounds like he's telling people to come back, but he's talking as if the church is something foreign to them. He says something like, "It doesn't matter your background." Well, my background is in the church um kimasabi uh, that's that's i mean i we that's the one thing we share you know if you're if you're talking to the apostates the, the only thing we have in common is, is this common background anyway I, I diverge all right um so he talks about unanswered questions um some struggle with unanswered questions about things that have been done or said in the past passive voice right away we, we, we're, we're already pushing away who is done or said. Okay. We openly acknowledge that nearly 200 years of church history, along with an uninterrupted line of inspiration, honorable and divine events. See, he can't even get through his apology before he has to retreat back to there. See, I, <laughs> it's not too long for it before he retreats back to, to saying what his true thing is. He thinks it's inspired, honorable and divine. I mean, it's, 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 he literally interrupts his sentence to, to, to insert that in. Then he says, there have been some things said and done that could cause people to question. Who is the active, um, um, who's the subject of that sentence? Anybody? I'll, I'll, I'll do, I'll do it Mormon Sunday school style. You have to guess what I'm thinking. <laughs> the, the, the person is, the, 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 the sentence is aimed at, that have caused people to question. So he's still putting the the blame on the recipient. He's saying, yeah, these things have been done, even though it's divine and inspired, but that's caused you to question. Not we caused you to question. You're the one who questioned. You're the one who took it wrong. You're still, it's still blaming the victim. Um, and he, he, even in his first paragraph, he can't get beyond that construction that he, even though he's saying, yeah, there's still people who, 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 um, they may not be offended. They may not be lazy or they may be sinful. But what he's saying is you're taking these guys too seriously. Um, you're, you're not giving them the benefit of being men, which is what he's going to get to here in a second. Um, so here's his next paragraph. Sometimes questions arise because we simply don't have all the information and we just need a bit more patience. When the entire truth is eventually known, things that don't make sense to us before will be resolved to our satisfaction. Um, the, this is something that um, I pointed out years ago, um, and I've actually seen it attributed to me, so I don't know if I made it up or not. But the, there's, this, there's this element of proving the church through unfound evidence, right? 
This is a really common th- a, a mode of thinking. So if we take the normal scientific method, you know, you go through and you find evidence and you come to a conclusion. So because the conclusion has already been achieved, there is evidence in their mind. This is where they're, 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 they've been through science classes. They know how science works. So there is evidence. It's just undiscovered. So, so the, the problem that you have as an apostate is you weren't patient because the evidence is coming. It's just not there yet. And I, I remember a talk, I think it was a BYU devotional by Oaks from years ago where he talked about that, where the, the, the golden plates would be, you know, there'd be evidence found right at the very end and it would, you know, validate everybody, you know, just like all great, um, sports movies, you know, at the end, the hero finds what he's looking for, um, which is really this bizarre sort of, sort of thinking. It, it, it is, it is reverse, um, you know, inductive logic where you have the conclusion already and all you have to do is be patient. Um, once again, what's he saying? He's saying that the people who left the church are impatient. So the first thing he says is that they are questioning. The second thing he says is they're impatient. Once again, we're, we're, we're putting it on the shoulders. So, so yeah, they're not offended, lazy, or sinful, but now we've established that they're questioning and they're impatient. Um, sometimes, this is him again, sometimes there's a difference of opinion as to what the facts, I'm putting my air quotes up here because that's what it says, <laughs> the facts really mean. A question that creates doubt in some can, um, after careful investigation, build faith in others. Well, yeah, okay. So, so, th- and this goes to the, once again, I, I'm going to address this in a couple weeks, but in the old days before I started Mormon Expression, I used to spend my time arguing with apologists. And I gave it up because all we ever talked about was epistemology. That was the only battleground left. And that's what this facts in quotes means. You, the, the way you establish religion is you question all of human knowledge. You say, humans can't really know anything. Um, it might look like there's gravity, but we might find a new law tomorrow that will throw that whole thing into, into doubt. And, and voila, science is always changing, blah, 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 blah. It, it's a, it's a fundamental misconception and misuse of science. And, and by putting, by throwing facts in there, it, what it's saying again is these are things that you think, Buster, but they're really not true because I know what's true. So I'm going to put your facts in air quotes. Um, because because they're they're not really too too um to uh they're not really good enough to cause doubt because he says that some cause doubt and others other cause faith. Well, I said that I said that a few minutes ago that faith is a is a buttress against um, regular cognitive processes, right? It's 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 a it's a bubble to put that around there, and the fact that that some people have faith based on well, it, it's it's a con- and I can't even remember what the um. What the, the terminology for this, but one of the, one of the, um, the famous cases is the Millerites, um, who in, I think it was 1843, were all gathered on a hill waiting for Jesus to return. And, and there's been lots of, um, instances like this, where in a religion drives towards an event, usually like an apocalyptic event. When that apocalyptic event does not occur, they do lose quite a few believers, but the ones who stick around become really devout. They become really um, believing. So the idea that as more evidence comes against the church, that some people will become faithful, we would actually predict that. And and this is what you're going to see, dear listener, over the next 300 years. As more and more evidence amounts against the church, the church will not go away. What will happen is it will shrink, and the people who are in will become more and more fanatical. 
Um, so it will do a power reversal where in, in, in a lot of ways they'll get rid of the mamby pambies, um, cause they'll, they'll leave and go find something else. And then just the true believers who cannot be questioned because, because it's sort of like this last week at conference. Um, you know, the, the, the women who went and protested, um, and, and were turned away from the priesthood session. You know, we, we see these pictures all over the press of, of these women crying. And I think a lot of our Mormon left friends are thinking this is progress. It isn't, it is in some ways, but they're forgetting that the heart and soul of the church, the 40% of the church, just take it in stride with their persecute, persecute, persecution complex, right? That, that this is just more evidence of Satan throwing his stones at the true believers. And it doesn't matter how many people are, they will get more, they'll get a bigger heart on for conference the more people are out there protesting. And there's, there's no, there's no way around that. Okay. All right. So, um, mistakes of imperfect people is the next thing. Okay. So, so here we're, we're turning, re- returning to Uchtdorf again. And to be perfectly frank, there have been times when members or, this is key. So let me slow down and, and, and say it slow. And to be perfectly frank, there have been times when members or leaders in the church have simply made mistakes. Now notice what he leads with. He doesn't le- lead with leaders. He, he leads with members members or leaders in the church, there may have been things said or done. There may have been. He's not even going to fucking acknowledge that there's things. He just says that there's a possibility out there that mistakes may have been made. There may have been things said or done that were not in harmony with our values, principles, or doctrine. But notice the values, principles, and doctrine are not in question. And then he says, I suppose the church would be perfect only if it were run by perfect beings. Here is the crux of where the, 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 the left is, is missing what he's saying in this talk. He just made a distinction between people and the church. He's just done the old classic church statement that the church is perfect. The church makes no mistakes. And that's what he just, he just said again. And that goes perfectly in conjunction with the first talk, part of his talk. For, for some of these um, interpretations that I've seen of this talk, they must be scratching their head trying to put the first half of the talk and the second half of the talk together. But I'm saying it makes perfect sense because his whole talk from all three sections of the talk are the same thing. The church is perfect. The gospel is perfect. There are no mistakes. The mistakes are all people making mistakes. Okay, I suppose the church would be perfect only for run by perfect beings. God is perfect and his doctrine is pure, but he works through us, his imperfect children, and imperfect people make mistakes. Notice he didn't say we make mistakes, he said the imperfect ones. Uh, let's see, what does he, oh, let, let's skip down a little bit. Um, he talks more about the Book of Mormon, blah, blah, blah. It is unfortunate that some have stumbled because of mistakes made by men. Once again, not the church, it's, 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 it's men. But in spite of this, the eternal truth of the restored gospel found in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not tarnished, not diminished, and not destroyed. As an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as one who has seen firsthand the counsels and workings of the church, I bear solemn witness that no decision of significance affecting this church or its members is ever made without earnestly seeking the inspiration, guidance, and approbation of our eternal Father. This is the church of Jesus Christ. God will not allow his church to drift from its appointed course or fail to fulfill its divine destiny. you. The talk is over. He has come back and established what he meant to say the whole way along, which is the church is perfect. How did you all miss this? (laughs) 
A New York Times, shame on you. He has done the same bait and switch that has been done for years and years and years. This is not an interesting talk in and of itself. Um, there is a big problem the church has. It is enormous. Um, and there's no way out of it in my mind. Um, you know, sometimes when I'm, when I'm talking to friends about the church and the church should do this and do that, and, I, and then I, I say to them, well, what would you do? You're in the quorum of the twelve. You get up there, and then you know, you, how would you fix it? Well, you can't, and here's why. Here's why the church is unreformable. The entire basis of the church is on the idea of restoration, of apostasy and restoration. If not, then the Protestant Reformation was good enough, right? If it's good enough to have good intent. I don't think any church authorities would say anymore that Martin Luther was um, a, a spawn of tool of the devil. They, they would have in the past, but not, not anymore, right? So the, the general um, consensus these days would be that the Protestant Reformation was one of good intent but lacking authority to act in God's name. Um, to quote God himself, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They didn't have the right authority. What Joseph Smith gave, and if you read Rough Stone Rolling and, as, and, and, and these sort of things today, this apologetic material, as the church is becoming aware that Joseph Smith was very flawed, that he was very hypocritical um, on, ba on basically every front. You know, he was, he was having sex with men wives. He was drinking whiskey. He was fighting. He was brawling. I mean, he's a frontier um, sort of dude. And, and that is becoming very, very clear. And the church can't bury that anymore. So this old narrative that we all grew up with, that he's the second most perfect guy ever, and, and these paintings that, oh, they have the halo around him, and, and where, where, he literally, if you took, take the LDS picture of, of Joseph Smith and Jesus and put them right, they're the same fucking guy, right? That, that thing we, we know can't, can't um, happen anymore. So now we're dealing with this flawed frontier guy. And, we, 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 we have to, we have to deal with that. So, so the restoration and, and the sort of Terrell Givens and Bushman narrative is God uses flawed men, um, because that's what he has access to. And he puts, he pours wine into old skins or what, maybe I'm mixing up my biblical, um, <laughs> analogy. He, he uses these guys in the shape they are because that's going to be the most effective way to do it. Was it um, Spinoza's um, philosophy to solve the problem of evil that this is the best of all possible worlds? Um, um, so, so Joseph Smith is the best of all pro possible prophets, um, and that's that's our that's our um, that's our excuse. But you have to have the restoration. You have to have the concept of priesthood. Otherwise, the whole system, all of the foundational reason for Mormonism, fails completely. Okay. So that is dependent upon prophets, and it's dependent upon authority, because the difference between the LDS church and the Presbyterian church would not be that we have a different Bible, because really the Book of Mormon doesn't really have anything that unique. It would be that, it would be that we have authority. We have inspiration. We have prophecy today. We have the power to act in God's name. So the Quorum of the Twelve meets every Wednesday in the temple, and they pray, and God speaks to them. And God speaks to the president of the church as his one true representative on earth. We all with me? I'm not making this shit up, right? Right, right. Okay. I've been accused of that before. 
I, I, I've had an idea of floating around in my head for a long time of getting as drunk as I can possibly get <laughs> and then setting a timer and try to explain all of Mormonism in one hour. <laughs> I guarantee you get a lot of hits on that podcast. <laughs> in case my mom's drink, listening, I don't really drink. Okay, um, so, so you have prophets, which are the foundation of the Restoration, which we've just established, is what is distinctive about Mormonism. This is what sets Mormonism apart. Once you acknowledge that the Twelve, or anybody who we would consider a prophet, seer, revelator, has made a mistake, you've in, you put your foot in a huge pile of, you've, you've, you've cracked the door open to a big problem. And that's if a prophet himself cannot tell the difference between revelation and his own bias, then there is no such thing as revelation. Let's, let's, meditate on that for a minute because here is the person who has been selected by god to be the the conduit or they've come up through the ranks on this whole using inspiration to choose callings to pick the next person to organize stakes to organize wards and to come up to the very top the very pinnacle and they're sitting in the temple and these are the the best of the best god's chosen vessels and if they cannot tell the difference between their own thoughts and that revelation, there is absolutely zero case to argue that revelation exists at all. At that point, once you allow for that construction, the whole foundation for the idea of prophecy and revelation and the whole foundation of the Mormon church of, of the restoration is out the door. You lose your entire standing for the church. So the reason Uchtdorf has to say mistakes were made, but he cannot say that there was a mistake made, is because it undermines the entire system. Not only moving forward, because what the church is more than anything today is it's a system of authority. What we have done since the um, golden age of Mormonism, which in my mind was was ended about the mid-60s. Uh, it probably ended about the time the... the um, uh, Tet Offensive. I'll call the Golden Age of Mormonism ending in 1968. Um, so, because I just said so. Um, after, after that point, the church starts withdrawing from its unique doctrines and, and starts distancing itself from the things that were uniquely Mormonism, uh, Mormonism theologically. It, it, it really starts taking pride in its history, like pushing handcarts. And, and, you know, today we do that. We push handcarts across Wyoming. Without any explanation as to why, you know, the, the basic question is like, no, no, wait, why, why, why did we not have oxen here? What, I mean, what, <laughs> why, um, what, why, why are we only carrying four hundred pounds? I mean, that's not enough, right? I mean, it's just nobody asks those questions, right? Um, because you you don't you don't question a- anything. There's no there's no theological primers anymore in the, in the church. There, it's all it's all being pulled out. So the only thing that's left is this line of authority. And once you undermine the line of authority, then then then, then what do you have? Um, you, you, you have nothing to stand on. So what Uchtdorf cannot do is actually acknowledge that there was any mistake made. Now, somebody out there is saying, now, hold on, Mr. Larson. The church has retracted lots of doctrines. The church has reversed lots of things. Um, I say no. And I take a dramatic... <laughs> dramatic swig off my bottle of yummy Mexican beer. 
it was, in fact, brewed and bottled in Mexico. Okay, so. Uh, um, the church, the, the doctrines have been quite um, fungible. <laughs> they have been... They, they have, they have changed. I, and I've, I've said before, there's not been a single doctrine that's not been mucked with to some degree or the other. But the, the, the core of it is that nothing has been reversed. Nothing has been called out. It's usually been buried. Let's use the two most prime examples that are usually brought up. Polygamy and, um, and, um, temple attendance slash priesthood for those of African descent. Polygamy, first of all, has not gone anywhere. Thank you very much. And that's why there's so many polygamists in the state of Utah. Hell, they're all over here. Go out into Harriman, go down into Lehi, you can head down to Colorado City, you can go up to Bountiful. There's, I read recently there's an estimated 50,000 polygamists who are living in polygamous compounds in, in the state of Utah, Nevada, Arizona, Wyoming, um, up into Canada. And there's another 50,000, um, who are undercover, um, and if you if you do the math, it basically averages one polygamist per ward along the Wasatch Front. And there's been interviews with some of these people who who've come out and said, yeah, that that I was a single mother, you know, in in the in the bountiful third ward, but I was married to this guy over here, and I was his third wife. Um, the reason that is, it, it, it's 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 because the doctrine of polygamy has never been retracted ever. No one has ever said anything at all to suggest that the doctrine is not true. And as a matter of fact, there's still remnants of it around. Um, if your first wife dies, you can go ahead and get married to a second one and a third one. And I have quoted over and over again the, the, the Dallin H. Oaks talk in 2002 where he affirms that both of his wives are his eternal companions. He's in the quorum right now believing that he has two wives. If, if New York Times, you want a great article, go pin him down. Ask him. And, and if, if you can pin him down, he'll, he'll confess to it. That he has two wives, and they will be his wives for all of eternity. This doctrine has not gone anywhere. It's just simply a matter of practice. The same with um, the, those of African descent. And I, I know I make this point over and over again, but let's not cut the women out of it. There's so often we say um, the blacks and the priesthood or whatever. It, it, it was bigger than that. It was um, about prayer in, in churches. It was about accessing the temple. It was racist th- through and through. It wasn't just a matter of priesthood authority. And... There was not um, any, there's never been a statement. They, they sort of kind of skirted around it, like you squint your eyes and you look at it in dim light, you can take it this way, but they've never really repudiated it and said, that was a false doctrine. And and frankly, it's in the f***ing Book of Mormon. It still says that white people don't like black people because they're ugly. It says that right in the Book of Mormon. God made them that way. Um, so, so the, the racism of the church is still embedded in the, in the manuals. And if we wanted to, we could take and find a hundred books here where it's blatantly laid out. No, I won't. I won't. <laughs> um, so, so, so this reversal, you're saying under the, under the guise of continuing revelation, we reverse it. They, they're not really saying that, that, that those of African descent should have had the priesthood in 1930. They're saying in 1978, God gave a revelation, and that's key word, that God changed it, that this wasn't the, the practices of men. They didn't say, oh, sorry, we screwed up. We were racist sons of bitches, and we shouldn't have been doing this. No, God gave a revelation, and everybody celebrates. So, so I don't think the church has any history of apologizing. If you go down to Mountain Meadows, 
Uh, Mountain Meadows is a fascinating site, and maybe we should go down there and record a, a live um, podcast sometime. The church owns the kill site, um, and there is a great big phallic monolith there on the kill site. And the, the state owns the, the monument up on the hill. So go down to the, go down to the church's monument and then go up to the hill and then you can see, you can see what happened. The church's monument, and I have pictures of this that I will post. There's a plaque that says, on this spot, Gordon B. Hinckley built a monument. It's a f***ing monument to a monument being built by a church. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating at all. There is no apology. There is no apology for 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 the the party that was massacred. There's no acknowledgement the church did anything wrong. It's just, aren't we so good that we put a monument up here to mark the spot where we put a monument? Um, and that's what is going on right here in this talk. Um, that that there's this, and and I I, I sympathize with with my brothers and sisters on the left. You all so much want the church to reform. You so much want it to change. And that comes from a genuine place. The church can't do it. It can't. It, look, look at the, um, and my apologies to my good friend John Hamer, but look at the, look at the reorganized church. They've just been on a slide. They've got no, no place to stand. Once you kick out the fundamental foundations of what the religion stands for, it just gets lost in the woods. If Mormonism ordains women, and I, I'm all for 100% e- equal rights um, for, the, for the genders, and if it acknowledges these, these mistakes, it's just floundering. It has nothing to go on anymore. And what would happen further is all of the conservatives, which there are a great number, would form the Mormon Tea Party, and they would, they would form an even more hyper conservative movement, which is one of the reasons the Mormon that. Mormon hot chocolate party. Mormon herbal tea party. <laughs> which is, so we go back to, to our good friend, President Uchtdorf. So let's cut him a little bit of slack. Cause I said in here, what's he gonna do? Where's, what, 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 what can he say? I just explained for the last 15 minutes why he can't. I, I light him up for not, for not, um, you know, pinning the blame on anybody or not saying we screwed up, but I explain why he can't do it. They're, they're really stuck. I, I really feel sorry for these guys. They are in a big colossal bind. They have nowhere to go. They have no moves left. Um, I, I, I don't know, I don't know how they can reform the church, but so there's something I hinted at in the beginning. When we talk about like Henry Kissinger and the Catholic priests and, and, you know, this mistakes were made tends to be the precursor to something happening. This talk does have significance and there is reason that the New York Times picked it up. So the church has been in denial for a long time. They've said, you know, we can go back 10 years. They say there's no problem. There's no problem of attrition. People are just making things up. There's, people aren't leaving the church in droves. Then there's the, then there's sort of a tacit acknowledgement. Yeah, we've got some problems. And then you can see these administrative things. Like they've, they've realized that they have a huge problem. We've, we've seen research come out a time and time again showing they have a huge problem retaining youth and people in their early twenties. So look at the major reforms the last couple, last couple years. They, they, they changed the mission age to grab them right out of high school before they have any chance to go do anything else. And then they, they try to reform this, um, the young single adult, um, structure. So that they can keep track of them and, 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 
and not lose them in in, in, in the flight because they they realize that they're 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 just they're just hemorrhaging um um people and they're hemorrhaging the wrong sorts of people meaning they're hemorrhaging people who have money um and and the church missionary effort in like South America and, and all that is, is good and it boosts their numbers but from a fiscal perspective it can be a it can be a drain on them um so so the church as as openly acknowledging they have a problem here. And they're openly acknowledging now that there is this internet force out there. Because remember about four years ago, I think it was Ballard who got up and I, I need to remind everybody, Ballard used to be a car salesman. Uh, the rest of them are like MBAs and, and, um, you know, accounts and stuff. And he was a car salesman, but he got up and said, um, go out on the internet and, and, and counteract it. And for a little while, there were like a lot of people putting up these, there were like teenage girls putting up these YouTube videos and stuff but then the church kind of told them to back down from that so they they my point is that they realize there's a problem they realize the information is out there on the internet but what's next i don't know it's going to be some interesting couple years here um the next 20 or 30 years will be pivotal um john can i ask you a question about that sure um because it seems like there's kind of two dichotomies going on. There's what I see on the internet and what we talk about as far as the church is dwindling. You're painted into a corner, so on and so forth. But none of this stuff seems to register with any of my active family members at all. They're not cognizant of anything, seemingly. So, I mean, is that anything that, that you've noticed or that, that we notice? You know, is, is this having any type of effect on our immediate family members or people who we know who are still active and still believe? I think it's a great question. I, if we go back to 1978, um, I think if, if you were looking at 1977, the, the issue with priesthood, um, and, and those of African descent was being talked about by, by, um, academics and liberals in the church. But in the church, it was mostly ignored. But when it came out, it was, it was overwhelmingly positive. There were people who left the church over it. Um, but they, but they were few in numbers and they weren't impactful. Most people were like, "Oh, thank God!" Uh, except Mormons wouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> they would that uh, this huge sigh of relief. So my my point is that I I think more and more that um, people are becoming aware. When I first got involved in sort of the the ex Mormon the fringe community ten years ago, um, we we would, people would come out to say a picnic and they'd be like, "I thought I was alone." And, and you would t talk to people, they, you'd say, you, you know, if they found out you left the church or, or whatever, they, they caught you drinking coffee at work, they'd be like, people leave the church. I mean, this is from my own experience 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, if people find out you leave the church, they, everybody knows somebody's left the church, right? They're like, oh yeah, my brother-in-law, he's a really great guy. He left the church. I think just in, in, in the 10 years that I've been around, there's been a huge shift in awareness. Now, I think your point is right. I think most members, this goes to that faith discussion we had at the beginning, um, where they buttress this around. They don't allow themselves to question. They keep sweet. They don't want to think about it, but they, they know it's out there. It's, it's, it's bugging them. It's, 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 it's tickling them. There was a survey, uh, my, I, if I remember the numbers correctly, uh, I think two years ago, where they, they basically get called up people, Dan Jones or somebody called people and said, what do you think about giving women the priesthood? And I think the number was like 80% of men, the active LDS men said, yeah, do it. Oh, and wow. it was like 40% of, of, of women said, do it. Like the majority of, of women in the church. But, the, but, but that, those numbers are, were still higher than you would expect. 
that I think a lot of the, the, the active members want, they, they know they're in a church that's backwards. They know it's behind the time. They're not comfortable with a lot of these things. You, you saw a lot of that at Prop 8. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of discomfort with, with Prop 8 and people like Steve Young, you know, who've now fully, um, I think just recently he and his wife fully have, you know, before they're like, eh, this isn't so great. And now they're completely distancing themselves from it. They're saying it was a mistake. So, so I, I, I think, for example, if the church were to announce tomorrow is going to ordain women, m- the majority of the members would just rejoice. Especially elders who don't have to do as much home teaching anymore. <laughs> but it, it still wouldn't really flip that switch that, okay, maybe there's something kind of fundamentally wrong. They would still believe it no matter what, right? I mean, yeah, well, I mean, that, that's, that's what's tend to happen. It, it, it goes to that Millerite thing. When Jesus yeah. didn't come in 43, for them it wasn't a, it wasn't, and mistakes were made. There's a, and I wish I could remember the details, but they, they talk about a specific cult like that. And they were, they were in the ladies' living room, like praying all night. And, and this group, you know, that, that the world was supposed to end at midnight. And like 4 a.m., she goes in and gets a revelation because you were all were so faithful. God spared the world. So they all come away thinking, man, not only was I part of the one true church, I, I almost single handedly saved the whole. World, right? So, so I, I, I think that a lot of people would just see this is sign that it's the true church that we have continuing revelation. Um, so I, I think, I think there will be people with every one of those that say, "Wait, what?" Because we saw that with Prop Eight, um, that there were there were uh, not a huge number, but there were a significant number of people who kind of left the church over that. You can find them around and say, "No, that was that was that that was the straw for me." Slow process, I guess. Yeah. But, but if you accept the, the, if you buy into the fundamentals of the church, you know, that Satan is, is, um, this is basically his world and he is confusing everybody and you can't trust anything but what you hear from the church. If you buy those sort of things, which, which are sold quite often in the church, mm-hmm. what, what penetrates that armor, you know? <laughs> Because anything, no matter how sensical it is, it's just more proof that Satan is 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 powerful, right? Right. Um, yeesh, that's scary stuff. Um, so there you go. So we have we have Uchtdorf not apologizing for anything, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, but I will acknowledge that um, it is a sign that the church is aware that there's a problem, and I think it is a harbinger of things to come. And how they navigate it will be fascinating. I, I fully acknowledge that I may not be wrong on this point. I have had this debate with many people who are smart, smarter than me, who believe that the church can and will substantially reform itself into a more progressive organization. I just am not imaginative enough to come up and be able to buy into that yet. I, I imagine that band on the Titanic scenario, you know, they, Hold fast to that iron rod, and they go down with the ship. You know. Yeah, has the last um, shaker died yet? So I think she, there's one woman holding on, <laughs> and she's got millions and millions and millions of dollars in property because right. she's the last shaker. You know, <laughs> um, the most people, the, the 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 problem that I think a lot of critics and um, ex Mormons and atheists and all these people forget is that people don't go to church for theology. And the one of the big problems always is, what's next? So, okay, if the church is not true, what do you do about it? Well, the answer is, we don't have anything for you, really. 
we don't have any good solution to that. And there are tons of people in the church who know it's a pile of, of they, they know it's Disney, right? They know it's just, it's just a fairy tale, but they say it's good. It's good for me. It's good for my family. It's good for my community. And I'm going to keep doing it. And, um, and so a lot of these things are like, oh, yeah, they'll, the, whatever, you know, um, that it'll, it'll catch up in time and they, and they don't care about that. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, that's one of the things that motivates, um, ex-Mormons, um, cause these were people who cared about this stuff and most Mormons don't. Matter of fact, you, I've, I've brought this up before, but it's, it's a, it's a good point. There are three groups of people in the state of Utah. Um, they're really like the Jack Mormons. There's the Mormons, and then there's the ex-Mormons. And the ex-Mormons are all serious. And <laughs> they take themselves way too serious. And I include my, I, I'm fully in that group. The Jack Mormons, let's be clear. Over 50% of the people have always been leaving the church. The church has always had a colossal bleed rate. So when we talk about ex-Mormons in Utah, the majority of Utahns are ex-Mormons. They just don't give a f- Right? Like, the ex-Mormons get all bent out of shape about all this stuff. They have podcasts. They get in their basement. They <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And they you know, point out, like, the little talks. Nobody else gives a f- Right? And 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 they're all like, why do you even care? What what does it matter? This is the same thing that's been going on for ten thousand years. It's going to go on for another ten thousand years. Why are you straining at gnats? And they're absolutely right. But some of us took it seriously, and we still take it seriously. And that's kind of a personal flaw. I will I will acknowledge that. <laughs> um, but my point I was getting at is, I get along really well with Mormons because we actually. It, Tannehill and I believe exactly the same thing about the church, right? We have we have the same interpretation of church philosophy. The ex-Mormons and the Jack Mormons, these are the guys that fight. <laughs> if you're in a bar and you grab your beer and you say, <laughs> Joseph Smith, the, 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 it's the Jack Mormons who will slosh their beer and come kick your ass. And, and I, it's the strangest phenomenon because the, there, there's just tons and tons of people who've, who've left the church, but some of us take it seriously. Um, so that's my take on, on conference. Any, any, any thoughts you all have? So if you say it's kind of a harbinger of, of, I say it might be, it might be, uh, you know, the Joseph Smith Papers Project is, is going on as well. And there's quite a lot in the church history that, that will be more revealed by the church than, than has been the case for a long time in the church. Yes. So maybe, maybe the mistakes were made, you know, by others, by members and leaders. At least, at least there's an opening. I, I can't remember church leaders in conference actually saying, that you know our leaders have made mistakes. Yeah, I, I I will acknowledge that this is a sea change. Why? That's hence the New York Times brought it up. My opinion about the Joseph Smith Papers is there's no smoking gun in there. The reason that all the smoking guns were shred and burned a long time ago. Um, I would invite everybody to read one of the best books on Mormonism, and it's it's out of print and hard to get. I think it's cost you a few hundred dollars. I better lock mine up. It's um, <laughs> Adventures of a Church Historian by Leonard Arrington. Um, and, and I, I think the church, one of the reasons the project is slow is because, yeah, there, the, the, there's, there's evidence, and I, I, I probably need to go look it all up, but there's evidence that people like Joseph F. Smith and Joseph Fielding Smith shredded and burned a lot of stuff. I don't think there's a lot of smoking guns out there anymore. And I think, I think it's, 
I obviously collect Mormon books, and what the thing I find fascinating about Mormon books is most of these books, no matter how old they are, have never been opened. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you that if you go to DI and look at books, most of them you'll crack the spine on. And um, it's like the fair journals, the apologetic material. Nobody really reads it. They just they just say, oh, look, there's all these smart BYU professors, and if they can believe it, then I can believe it. If there's apologetic wing out there, then that shows that it's true. If the Joseph Smith papers exist, then then that shows that we're being forthright. No one will read it. <laughs> I mean, I'm being really super cynical. But but there's at least information in there that says Joseph did marry uh, women that were already married, did marry... You know, I mean, church does not talk about this. No, right? but but one of the one of the tactics the church has had that that apologists, and this goes to my history debating apologists, is some of that. If you knew where to look, that stuff was always known, and they would say they would blame the victim again. They said, mm-hmm. "Well, I knew that. How come you didn't know it?" Well, the reason you didn't know it is because the church scrubs it out of all its manuals, and the majority of the church members are non English speakers, right? And um, they only have access to what the church translates. So for the majority of the church uh, membership, they do not have access to, the, to this sort of stuff. Um, but, I mean, to your point, your point is, is a fair one. I don't mean to push on you so much. That there's more and more of this information getting out there. Um, and, and it's really becoming more Google-fied. It's, 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 easier, exactly. it's easier to get, easier to process. And, and there, there's, there's websites and podcasts and stuff that, 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 that talk it through, and they, ha- they have to acknowledge it. Matter of fact, I think the Joe Smith Papers Project has been around a long time. One of the reasons it's stalled is because, is because the Internet made that information so much more readily available so much faster that it sort of cut them at the, it sort of cut them at the knees of what they were trying to do, which is to continue that that practice of publishing it in obscure um, obscure um, um, ways. Uh, I remember, I think it was in two thousand three, the church came out with a a a set of um, CDs at that time um, that had a bunch of historical documents, all of Joseph Smith papers. But they made like like they made like three hundred copies of it, and it was five hundred bucks a, a piece. I mean, there's no reason to do that except to keep people from buying it. Then they can say it's out there, and a lot of these books are in short run because there's actually not that many there's not that many buyers of them. It's very rare for any Mormon book to go into second printing. Um, so, and I picked up. I was I I have two copies of the the big beautiful Joseph Smith papers because I was in Desert Book three weeks ago, and it was twenty bucks. That book was. That, that's such a beautiful book, and it's got facsimiles, and they're liquidating them. That that twenty bucks means Desert Book wants to get rid of them, and I I I, ha- I had to buy it because I mean there's there's not that many of them, and and it's just it's just a damn shame, you know. But but Desert Book is getting rid of them. They don't want them around. But then they can say they were they were there. Cyclopedia of Mormonism. Um, it's not it's not in print. It's it's very difficult to get. But they'll it's quoted all the time by apologists. But it's not really super accessible. But the internet sort of changed, sort of mm-hmm. changed that game. I don't know. I, I, something, something's going to happen. Something's got to give, right? It's, it's sort of like while we're recording this, Congress is in the middle of, of shutdown. We're heading towards the, you know, it can't, it can't go on. Yeah. And I, I look at these elements the church has that are really anti-progressive, you know, gay marriage and, and Oaks gave his big talk. Um, you know, so you, you juxtapose these two, two talks and you can see that, that real, um, tension. Um, 
Joanna Brooks, um, brilliant writer, brilliant thinker, you know, ascribed it to, um, you know, she said this shows that there's tension in the quorum. I think it more shows they don't know what to do. I think she's giving them too much credit. And then she, she, she says basically, oh, this is, this is how revelation works. And my response would be, well, how's that different than how every group of people works? I mean, you discuss things, come up with different opinions. I mean, if that's what revelation is, we've just defined it out of existence, right? Which was kind of my point in the first place. Um, so I don't know. What do y'all think? What's the, what's the what's the over under on how long before the church gives on one of these major issues like like equal rights for women or gay marriage or um, or quits asking people if they jerk off that sort of stuff? <laughs> and they say that the church is about twenty to thirty years behind everything else. So yeah. you know, thirty years, maybe we'll see. I mean, Some I think, progress. I think that's reasonable. Just long enough for all those guys to die, to off. die off. Yeah. Well, um, I know this is a point I've made over and over again, but the pressure on the church in 78 was becoming enormous. And I, I still say the most important thing that happened was when Stanford University refused to play BYU. Yeah. Now you're kicking them in the wallet. Um, and with the gay marriage thing, it will be something akin to that. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the um, slippery slide... Slippery slope argument that churches and and I've Mormon leaders have made this argument other conservatives that if if we allow for full gay marriage then everyone will be forced to um, you know marry um, homosexuals the response is well you're not forced to marry heterosexuals right now and that's perfectly legal so I, I think it's a it's a fallacious argument um, but I think the, the the underpinning of the argument is that they'll look stupid. And they do know that that it's it's a it's a it's a wall that puts the issue out there, and they don't have to they don't have to say no gays allowed because the law is already saying that, so they can say visitors welcome, um, and not have to say no. We specifically will not marry um, homosexuals. Um, what, so, what's the Catholic Church's stance on gay marriage right now? I'm looking at they're against it. Um, they're well, they're, they're against all marriage. <laughs> but if you gotta. Better to better to marry than burn, as Paul said. I just uh, wonder if the church wouldn't follow in the footsteps of these other uh, Judeo-Christian churches as they start to sort of fall into that, you know, P- for PR reasons strictly. I'm I'm sure they will. I'm 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 sure they will. They don't want to be too much of an outlier, right? Um, um but the, I I think post polygamy, the church for the, through the 20th century, the church turned its religion into hyper-American exceptionalism, hyper-patriotism, and they sort of juiced it up religiously. Especially if you read conference talks from the 50s, oh my God, those things are just like jingoistic um, nightmare. <laughs> and, you know, you, the, they're talking about the commies all the time, the flag, and, and, um, and that was what we hitched our train to. And there were, there were conservative organizations like Reader's Digest, just like loved the Mormons through the 60s and 70s, and, and, um, you know, we were, we were the chief sponsors of the Boy Scouts and defenders of Americana and all that sort of stuff. And, um, I, I don't know if that works anymore for, for, um, for us to be super duper Americans. Um, so the church, I think, is in another identity crisis. Like, who do they want to be? And, and I think so, every once in a while they look around and say, wait, we're, we sound a lot like these other guys here who aren't, very po- I'm getting picked. You know, it's like getting picked last for the basketball team. You look at the two guys next to you. And you're like, oh man. I think, 
I think that's where the, the church is. But I don't see them presenting a good new identity. Um, but they've hired a lot of firms and they tried out a lot of stuff over the past 20 years, but I don't see them landing on anything yet. Um, because it's been so ingrained. I mean, the church is, I, I, I talk about structure. It's not only structure, it's, it's a male patriarchal structure. And I don't, I don't know how you extract Mormonism from that. I, it's just so much a part of Mormonism. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not justifying it anyway. I just, it's just like somebody's got like stage four cancer that spread through their whole body. Like, how do you, how, how you can, you can try chemo, but you're not going to take a knife to that poor bastard. Um, so I, I don't know. We'll see. I, I could, I could be wrong. The church could reform itself and they will have, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I don't see it, but I don't know what's going to happen. So. <laughs> All right. Any other thoughts? What about his other phrase that it was a uh, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith? Wasn't, I mean, that has gone around. Oh, I, in the blogosphere, like, I didn't yeah. address that because that was just plain old bullshit. Um, <laughs> of course, you should doubt your doubts, but you should doubt them with the same method that you're doubting in the first place. It, it was just a sleight of hand for him saying, have faith. That's all he was saying. He wasn't really saying doubt your doubts because anybody would say, what we're saying is, um, critically analyze your assumptions. Great. That's, that's, and, and, and critically analyze those criticisms. Yes, we would all agree with that. That's not what he was saying, right? He was saying suspend your doubts is what he was saying. Yes. Um and and which is which is not reasonable, you know. But that's what that's what uh, uh true believing members uh, are are kind of pointing to as his talk, you know. Most most people who have gone away from the church, it's like the true believing members are saying you should have given the church the benefit of the doubt. To, to reuse the term, but we did, yeah, we did. Well, we gave the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I've no, I, I, and yeah. it's putting the blame back on the person that left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you should have just doubted those doubts. Why yeah. didn't you just have more faith? Right, you rationalized yeah. too much. Um, and and to be fair, he stole that from Orson Scott Card, who wrote an essay three or four years ago about doubt. I will doubt my doubts, and Orson Scott Card turned into a. F- not um so I, at least he should have he should have at least uh, attributed that to the right place um i'm still gonna see his movie <laughs> i've never read the book so i can i don't know if i'm gonna see i'm gonna see his movie or not <laughs> all right well it's been another fine hour here at mormon expression central studio um uh, as always, the discussion continues over at the uh, website. Contrary to all rumors of the, of the um, opposite, uh, Mormon Expression is still a fully owned and copyrighted vehicle of the Whitefields Educational Foundation, an incorporated company in the state of Utah with full um, tax deductive benefits. Um, uh, we're still around. We're still producing. Last I checked, um, in the middle of summer, even without me recording, we had 50,000 downloads um, in the month of May, I do believe. Haven't checked it since then, so it's still out there and we're still around. So um, I look forward to recording more and hearing more from all of you. So mosey on over to the website, check, look for us on Facebook, and um, keep in touch. Thanks, everybody. Here tonight. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.